Howdy all, welcome back to Who Knew We Didn't, and welcome to the Study Study Edition. Here at WKWD, we normally cover topics in psychology, and we explore them and hypothesize about this, that, and the other, but in the study studies, we focus on specific, pivotal ideas, concepts, or studies, ding ding, in the field of psychology. Megan and I were not able to record together this week because I was off frolicking in Amsterdam for a bit, so in that tight turnaround, we decided to do a couple study studies, so that's what you're getting, folks, and I don't know why I'm still explaining this to you because you have no choice, so let's get over this intro and just dive in. Today, I'm talking to you about the minimal group paradigm. What is it? Well, let me take you on a journey, dear friends. First, let's talk about what a group is. According to Google, or Google for the normal folk out there, a group is a number of people or things that are located close together or are considered or classified together. For today, we're only thinking about people, so let's keep that in mind and move forward. Now, close your eyes and imagine your family. That's a group. Imagine your friends at work. That's also a group. Imagine your partners in suffering at kickboxing class. Want to guess what I'm going to call them? Graduates. No, group. These are all groups because you guys are located together or are considered to be classed together because of something in common, like your genome for your family, your job for your work buds, or your love of self-torture in that kickboxing class. Taking this local and personal knowledge of groups, we can expand this to, of course, a larger scale. All of the liberals in your country? Group. All the Polish kids at your school? Group. Members of the United Nations? Groupity group group group. In our lives, groups can be responsible for many huge things. Good things like support groups at AA meetings, global movements like the Paris Agreement, and all the countries that are part of the UN. Those are all groups. Uh... Other good groups aren't coming to my mind right now, but of course there are negative groups who love to bring people down as well, like incel groups on Reddit, cliques at school, racist groups, and so on. Sports teams are groups, colleagues are groups, in, and in each group there is a relative outgroup. So people who don't belong to that one group, they have an outgroup or a group, another group that... I've said group so many times, but I'm sure you're getting the picture. People tend to favor their in-group and they tend to discriminate against out-groups. For example, sports teams, right? You have an in-group and you're playing against the out-group, so they are the enemies. We're discriminating against them. Anyway, you get the picture that I'm painting slowly and in primary colors here, right? Groups are everywhere and always, and group dynamics are also everywhere and always. Well, there was this guy, Henry Teifel, who agreed that groups are everywhere and perhaps always, and maybe, probably, actually, very likely, his own very unfortunate outgroup membership sparked his interest in groups everywhere. You see, Henry was a Polish Jew. You want to know when? During the Second World War. Now, unlike my description of groups to you a few minutes ago, I'm not going to spell this situation out for you. You can do some of your own Google uh, to figure out why being a Polish Jew in Warszawa, or Warsaw for you non-Poles, during the time of the Second World War was a bad time to be part of that particular group. If you don't know about that yet, I don't really want to burst your ignorance bubble for you, so go for it, Google it. Being a Polish Jew in Warszawa during the Second World War, bad news bears. 
Anyway, the theory is that this radical discrimination that Henry experienced against his in-group actually spurred his research into groups in general, and he had an idea. Henry wanted to find out exactly what it is that causes someone to feel like they are part of a group, and what variables are necessary in order to bond yourself to this group so tightly that social prejudice and discriminatory behavior directed at outgroups is acceptable, such as during the Second World War. And here's his interesting finding. You don't need any variables to bond yourself to this group. Well, maybe I misspoke. You need one. But let me explain. He was thinking that maybe you need to be part of some sort of the same religious system or same nationality or the same belief system to form such a strong bond with your group members. But Henry actually found that this was not the case. Of course, yes, all the above options create strong group bonds and foster group dynamics, but you don't need those things. You actually don't need anything other than a statement indicating that you are part of the same group. So just the information that you are in this group is enough to foster, to begin to foster those group dynamics and those group effects. Henry created experiments where group members didn't even know anything about their other group members. They didn't know what they looked like. They didn't know their names. They didn't know their interests, hobbies, gender, nothing. They just had a number to identify people with. They didn't actually even know if there were other people. They would just be given this list, uh, two lists actually, and one had a set of ID numbers and they were told you are part of this group with this set of ID numbers and another one was also a list of ID numbers and they were told you are not part of this group. The studies found that this arbitrary classification, just the group membership alone based on nothing in common at all, is enough to foster group dynamics and group membership outcomes. Teifel definitely pioneered this field, but was by no means the only person who conducted research in this area and had the same findings. The whole concept that you need nothing really of importance to elicit group favoring behaviors is called the minimal groups paradigm. Bum, bum, bum. This is the topic of our discussion today. Sure, you might be thinking, big whoop, Marta, so they're in a group. What does that have to do with anything? And to that, I have two things to say. Number one, have you no faith in me, dear listener? You should know not to ask these questions while I'm talking, through to interrupt. And number two, group membership has a lot of effects. So the idea that you can actually make somebody part of a group just by saying it is so results in a lot of things. Going back to Teifel's studies in particular, participants in his studies were, one, more generous with resource allocation for in-group members than out-group members. Two, they were more likely to positively evaluate in-group members than out-group members. And three, they were more likely to attribute negative qualities to out-groups. So if they were told, this person did something bad, what group do you think they belong to? They will say, I, this ID number belongs to the out-group, or this ID number belongs to the in-group if it was somebody that did something good, that sort of thing. And that's just in Teifel's studies alone. Since his findings in 1969 and the early 1970s, the list of group effects has only grown. And let me tell you about some group membership effects. So if somebody, based on the minimal group's paradigm, has been included into a group and feels like they're members of this group... There are all of these effects. There's 
outgroup homogeneity effect, the phenomenon where you view your own group as quite diverse and outgroups as very homogenous. When we're thinking about this, think stereotypes. I'm a good driver, but everybody else in the outgroup is a bad driver. Then there's positive differentiation. Positive differentiation is a potential explanation for how people act in groups where the link between social identity such as group membership, and self-esteem is what creates the pressure to evaluate in-groups positively in comparison to out-groups. In English, this means I want to feel good about myself, so I will evaluate my in-group as a good group and the out-group as the bad group. So me being part of the good group means I am good. So the fact that social identity is tied to self-esteem could have something to do with that, like why we evaluate in-groups better. Next up is in-group favoritism and out-group derogation. Duh, we already knew this. People tend to favor their own group and tend to dislike their out-groups. Next up is groupthink, which is a style of decision-making in-groups. I'm sure if you guys look into groupthink, it gets pretty scary uh, with what happens when groupthink takes over a group. We have territoriality, which is a pattern of attitudes or behaviors where you try to mark up your place in order to control it. Think American flag on the moon. Next, we have subtyping, a cognitive process where if somebody from an outgroup does not fit your stereotype, you mark them as an exception or as a poor member of that group. Like if you meet a rude Canadian as an American, you automatically say, oh, well, this Canadian is different, but everybody else still fits my stereotype. For whatever reason, this one's different. Maybe they had a bad day, but the stereotype still stands. This concept alone is really fascinating also because it explains partially why people are reluctant to let their stereotypes be disproven, for example. Next up, we have migrant bias. So you discriminate against migrants into your own group because they cause a larger cognitive load to process and understand. So it's harder for your brain to understand their membership in your group. So you tend to discriminate against them. It's a possible explanation. And finally, there's one with a funny name called Vladimir's Choice. This refers to the tendency for people to favor the in-group relative to the out-group when distributing resources. Uh, even when doing so requires the people to sacrifice in-group process in absolute terms. In English, this means that people will sacrifice the good of their in-group a little in order to diminish the resources that are given to the out-group. So if they're in a study where they're told everything that you give to the out-group and the in-group pulls into a collective resource or something like that, they will still give less to that out-group and rather allocate it to no one than to the outgroup. I can honestly go on and on and on about the effects of group membership because it's so insanely fascinating that it takes nothing other than membership itself to create some of these effects. And that's the minimal group paradigm. It also has some interesting applications where you can shift how people think about others by showing them that they are part of the same group. For an extreme example, let's say a racist is at an event and someone on the loudspeaker says, all of those with red shoes are on team A and everybody with blue shoes is on team B. Let's say the racist is on team A along with a bunch of people from the race that they normally discriminate against. When they are put into a team together because of some common denominator, like they all have red shoes and there is an out group with blue shoes, the racist person tends to cooperate better with the 
people that they normally discriminate against because now there's something binding them together. Now they together have a shared objective against the other team, which is interesting. Could arbitrary group membership be used to combat racism and active biases? Not sure. Obviously, this won't solve everything, but it's an interesting concept to work with. Maybe we can solve the world's problems by selling everyone's shoes the same color as the people they discriminate against. Mm, well, I mean, it wouldn't work. Right? Listeners? Anybody own a shoe store? Anybody want to run this study for me? That would be really freaking cool. Anyway, it's very clear that the minimal group paradigm has huge support behind it and has repeatedly been reproduced in both clinical and environmental studies. So in many, many different situations, we know that you don't need a shared religion or something huge of important value to link two people together. It's enough to just say you are in a group with these ID numbers. That's it. And many studies have since been built off of this. I just thought that you guys would be interested in knowing what it, it what it takes to make a group. And now we know that it's nothing. And with that, I'm going to wrap up today's episode. In true Marta fashion, this episode was released late. I'm really sorry. I honestly can't make up excuses. I just have, I guess, terrible work ethic. I'm really sorry and I'm a bad person. But that's the reality of my life and please don't hate WKWD just because of me and I am a bad person. Anyway, follow us on our social media, please. We are Who Knew We Didn't everywhere. We also would love to hear from you through the WKWD hashtag. Uh, Currently, it's just me and Megan tweeting on the hashtag and some stuff from a few years ago. So if you guys want to tweet at us, that would be really cool. Uh, And we also have a Patreon if you want to support us and that's linked in the comment box down below this episode or uh, wherever you see, not the comment box. What am I, a YouTuber? It's linked in like that description thing on podcast apps. Anyway, I'm rambling. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for putting up with my tardiness because you had no other option. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.